0: We turn now to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll read the first 16 verses. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And our text this morning is the first four verses, or rather the first six verses. After 56 verses, our text this morning gives us only the second command of this book so far, uh, the second imperative, is found in our text. And that really challenges uh, common assumptions about the Christian faith and about the message of the gospel. It certainly serves as a corrective to those who think that Christianity is all about do this, uh, don't do that. Actually, it doesn't begin there at all, but rather it's about God's doing. It's about God's working, God's working in history. It's about God's promises and grace to people who fail to do, who fail to honor God supremely and to love their neighbor as their selves. In fact, the gospel is a message of good news to those who themselves are selfish and, and evil and guilty, those described in chapter 2 as dead in trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, even when we are dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. In fact, the only other command that we uh, read in this book up to this point is a command that says, remember, remember that you once Gentiles, remember your natural lost condition. Don't forget the wondrous grace of God that delivered you out of your misery. So the first command really is also all about this message of grace to sinners. But now, in Chapter Four, we do come to a transition, a transition from the more doctrinal part of this letter, uh, full of indicatives that is full of statements of god's work uh, to the application of that teaching. We moved from the things that are to be believed, not as if we leave them behind, but we move also to the consideration of this book's teaching about the things that are to be done in the lives of Christians in response to this gospel. Yes, the Christian message is to be believed, because salvation is a gift that is received by faith. But it's also a message that leads to new life and new living. And uh, chapter 4 marks a transition, like we find also in the book of Romans where we have the first 11 chapters largely occupied with, with the message of the gospel, the doctrinal part of the book. And then in verse 12, the application, I beseech you, I implore you, therefore, by the mercies of God that have just been so wondrously expounded, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. A living sacrifice, not a bloody sacrifice that could atone for sin. Only Christ could do that. But a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. And then it describes describes the conduct that ought to characterize Christians. This Christian message had landed Paul in a Roman prison. Uh, But that didn't... Uh, stop that message from going forward, and it certainly didn't detract anything from its truth and power. Rather, it really adds weight to his appeal to believe that message. I uh, beseech you as the prisoner of the Lord, as one who is willing to to suffer uh, imprisonment for the sake of this message, because this message is not about earthly success or temporal blessings. And it gives way to that message that calls them to faith in Christ. A message that liberates, not from literal change necessarily, but liberates from the bondage of sin and death. He implores them to live according to the riches of that grace. A life that is also a shared life. A life that is not lived in isolation, but a life that is lived in community a life that is lived as a spiritual family. And that really is the great emphasis of our text this morning and even the following uh, verses. Live graciously together in response to God's grace. That's really what we hear in this summons, to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That word walk is uh, a way of expressing the ongoing, progressing life of faith. And we're called to walk in a way that is fitting, in a way that is appropriate to this message of salvation by grace. In other words, to walk worthy does not mean to walk in such a way as to merit anything, but rather to walk in such a way as to reflect and to live out the wonder of this Grace of God. Live graciously together as a matter of first importance for Christians. Paul here really puts first what many would put way down the list when it comes to the Christian lifestyle, when it comes to the Christian walk. How many would put unity and love in the body of Christ first when it comes to the application of the gospel? Now, Paul, indeed, will address many areas of Christian living. He will talk about our call to separation from the ways of this world in holiness. He will talk about personal disciplines, if you will. He'll talk about character. He'll talk about about our life in this world. He'll talk about life in the midst of our families. And all those things are very important when it comes to Christian living. But from the start... You might say that the Christian life is described here in a rather churchy way. And I, I know that might be a provocative term, but I use it intentionally because uh, the Apostle Paul is expounding life in the body, life in the family of God. And it's in the context of his teaching about, about the unity of the church of Jesus Christ and how the Christian life is lived out in relationships in this family of God. Personal disciplines, individual or family behaviors are not put first, but rather living together as the family of God is. And that's radical. That's really quite radical. In contrast with so many contemporary ideas of what it means to be a Christian, where church is viewed with a consumer mentality that you can take it or leave it, and you judge its value according to uh, personal benefits that you derive from it, and it's easy come, easy go, and shop around. The Christian life we're taught in Scripture is not individualistic. It's not lone ranger Christianity. It's not rugged do-it-myself independence. It's not self-sufficiency. It's not self-reliance. It's not self-centered. It's not (laughs) self-satisfied. And brothers and sisters, that's not only true with respect to our relationship with God, but it's also true with respect to our relationship towards one another. No, the people of the world will say, I don't need God. That's their attitude. That's sometimes their their confession reflected in their behavior. But f- far too many professing Christians, in effect, say, I don't need the church. I don't need others. I'm rather self-reliant. I can access many resources all on my own, and I find them very beneficial, and I find them to be sufficient. I don't need organized religion. I don't need to have my uh, name on a register in some building. Well, that's the way they would characterize membership in the church. Often in a very pejorative way that communicates a kind of independence and self-sufficiency, self-reliance. And often it's misjudged as spirituality. Union with Christ always means union with his body. That's how we're nourished. That's how we grow in maturity uh, together. We're united to Christ. Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Think about how the New Testament describes the, the impact of the gospel from the very outset in, in such terms. In chapter two, following the, the Preaching of Peter at Pentecost and the tremendous results that God brought about by the power of his Holy Spirit. We read in verse 41, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then verse verse 46 and 7, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. To be saved is to be added to the church. And the church is described here in terms of its shared commitment to doctrine, to fellowship, those called by Christ are called into fellowship together. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, I trust you you recognize that the language of calling is stronger than a kind of invitation or a kind of offer. It's an effectual calling. You were called in one hope of your calling. A common Christian hope among those who have been effectively brought to Christ by the power of the gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is speaking of in different language when He says, My sheep hear My voice, and they follow Me, and I give to them eternal life. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. They will hear My voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. That's grace the grace that calls us out of darkness into the marvelous light of the gospel together as God's new creation. Now, this is, first of all, a spiritual unity of faith, but it's lived out in in actual flesh and blood relationships and relationships that even clearly from this very chapter involve a kind of organizational structure because the ascended Lord Poured out his gifts upon the church through the Holy Spirit. And those gifts include what? Well, those extraordinary gifts of apostleship and the prophetic ministry and evangelists. But the ongoing ministerial gifts of the church in terms of pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints. For the work of ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ, it takes place under the structure of God's appointment through office bearers, pastors and teachers, in this kind of structure that Christ appointed and Christ gives. Now this relationship also requires a specific set of qualities or of graces for it uh, to work. And that leads us to consider, secondly, that uh, this calling to live together, which is a matter of first importance, is a calling to live graciously together with Christ-likeness. That's my summary of of verse 2, which says, "...with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering bearing with one another in love." We're reminded also, aren't we, by this uh, second verse that graces are of first importance above gifts. Paul will indeed speak of gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, particularly those gifts of office that I just uh, referred to, quoting uh, from uh, these verses before us. But of first importance are not special abilities of knowledge, or special abilities of official service or of public achievements, but of first importance are the graces of character that ought to characterize every member of the body. Those graces of character like those that mark the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not hard to see that this brief description of these characteristics are reflected perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we see the perfect beauty of God's image. He is the perfect model of lowliness and of humility. In Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Then in verse 5, he says, let this mind be in you. What is lowliness of mind? Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was equal with God. And yet he humbled himself. He took upon himself the form of a servant and was obedient unto death. If the perfect Son of God showed such humility in order to save us sinners, How much more should we see that everything that we have, everything that we are as Christians, is by grace. It's not an achievement. It's not anything that should exalt us over others or be envious of others, but they should be seen as gifts of grace given to glorify our Savior and to use also in the service of one another with lowliness, with humility. With all gentleness, gentleness, think of our Lord Jesus' self-description. One of those rare instances in which he describes his own character. And what does he focus in, focus on? I am gentle and lowly of heart. Therefore come unto me, all those who are burdened and heavy laden, I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I am gentle and lowly of heart. Paul implores the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10 uh, by the gentleness and meekness of Christ. He appeals to them on those terms that they might be moved with a recollection, with faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, with all gentleness, with long-suffering, patience sometimes rendered, long-suffering and forbearance. These are closely uh joined together the word rendered long suffering in our in our text uh involves the idea of being long-souled literally that i understand is what this word suggests which is kind of an interesting uh word but it indicates uh taking a long-term view of things and seeing other christians In that light, seeing our brothers and sisters as a work in progress, even as the Lord sees us in that way and we want him to see us in that way, to see our brothers and sisters with all their sins and imperfections as a work in progress so that we're not hasty to categorize people, to make judgments about things that they've said and things that we don't like about them and kind of relegate them into a category that says, well, I really don't want anything to do with them because they're like this or like that. Taking a critical and a negative view of one another rather than a positive and hopeful view of one another despite our sins. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love is patient. Christ bears with us in our weaknesses and failings. And so such grace is to be exercised also in the body of Christ. Actually, these are just so many different uh, features of Christian love. I mentioned earlier that grace has come before gifts in terms of importance, and uh, that's made abundantly clear in in First Corinthians. You know that chapter uh, 12 is about gifts, in the church, and indeed, gifts are by God's grace. God graciously bestows his gifts on the church for his purpose of, of nurturing and growing the church. But after uh, expounding on those gifts, he says, and yet I, I show you a more excellent way. And you know that that's the introduction to chapter 13, this wonderful chapter of Christian love, which describes love in, in, in ways that are very similar to our text this morning. It says love suffers long or is patient and is kind. Love does not envy, does not parade itself. Right? It's not proud, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. This love that abides, which is the greatest also of faith, hope, and love. And then I always like to include the first part of chapter 14, which begins with the words, pursue love. In other words, endeavor to grow in this, uh, Christian grace, to grow in the practice of love. We're called to live together graciously according to these characteristics of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, live graciously together in a common effort for unity. Verse three, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You know, we could, we could uh, paraphrase that this way. Be eager and enthusiastic about maintaining unity. Know that it is a precious thing. Know that it's something that's worth striving for, not striving against one another, but striving together for the unity of the faith. In fact, uh, Philippians actually uses such language where Paul says that uh, uh, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Showing your common commitment together for the truth of the gospel. Yes, this unity is a unity of faith. And that means that it is a unity in the truth. Because truth matters. And truth unites. And growing together in the truth is also a work in progress. It's described that way just later on in this chapter. These offices are appointed for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity of faith is described in terms of an increasing Knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. In other words, unity and maturity in faith is a unity in the truth. Therefore, he continues, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him. So we're not talking about unity at the expense of truth, but unity in the truth, in our growing, common understanding and living of the truth. And this requires being together. It requires worshiping together. It involves such things as, as Bible study, praying together, mutual encouragement. I had a, have a colleague that, uh, spoke of what he described as spiritual separation disorder, right? Now there's a disorder for everything. But he used that term to describe what happens sometimes when people seem to distance themselves from the body of Christ. They, they, they drop out or they stay away. And that that brings about certain common and often quite predictable consequences. And that is that people can develop a negative attitude towards the church. Only the bad stuff is remembered and often exaggerated. And it's not corrected. It's not smoothed out by uh actual interaction with one another. You know, it's easier to just form judgments, negative opinions, and then harden yourself in those opinions by interpreting everything on your terms. It's easy to do that if you just stay to yourself and you don't interact with people. But it's in the course of actual interaction that we grow together. Whereas staying away in hurt and bitterness can actually lead to sometimes what looks like hatred of the body. People become accustomed to a habit of self-justification and criticism, negativism. And they become hardened in that position. Maybe it's a self-defensive uh attitude as they fear or feel criticism of themselves, imaginary or real. But it's the result of isolation, separation, dropping out, distancing ourselves from the body and missing out on the hard work, sometimes the painful work sometimes the tearful work of persevering in relationships together, forgiving one another, forbearing one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. You know, there's this expression that absence makes the heart grow fonder. You've heard that expression perhaps. And, uh, it may be true in some respects, especially if that absence is short-term and there's a, a real love and a longing to get together and circumstances require a separation, but it's not a general rule that's even true. Absence often makes the heart grow less sensitive and colder. Absence miss, misses out on the closeness of relationships that it can only flourish in the context of seeing each other, talking together. You know, I observed this, and again it might might seem a strange illustration, but I observed this in the different way that I found myself grieving over the death of my own parents. Because it was more intellectual for me. In contrast to some of my siblings who lived with my mom and dad, who saw them many often weekly, sometimes daily, and their grief was much more profound because it was a personal experience of of a change, a great change in their relationship. And I kind of grieved over missing out on that. You know, who grieves the most over the death of a spouse? Often it's those who have been with them daily, caring for them, showing love for them. And you might think, oh yes, what a relief now that their spouse is gone and now they don't have that burdensome weight on their daily life. No, often. Sometimes the sense of loss is, is heavy in relationship to the closeness of that relationship in terms of care and service. Live together in a common effort for unity. We should, we should rather, in contrast to any kind of spiritual separation disorder, we should rather have a shared passion for unity. We should aim to stir each other up. To such commitment, I see that as one of the values uh, from our small group meetings. It has deepened um, fellowship, it has made closer connections, and we do want visitors, we do want new members to catch the excite- excitement of together being part of God's work. We want them to see that. We want to see that being a member of the church indeed involves a commitment, a kind of togetherness. We don't want to communicate the idea that, oh yes, you know, you're welcome to join us on your terms and, uh, um, we, we don't make demands on people. We don't have very high expectations in terms of their involvement. What's compelling about that? What's attractive about a church that says, yeah, come and go as you please, participate as you wish. No expectations, no demands upon you. No, rather the church should be characterized by mutual concern to maintain a passion for worship, a passion for studying the Word of God together, a passion for being together in fellowship. Live together in a common effort for unity then finally live together upon the sevenfold foundation of oneness the word one is uh, found more times in three verses than in any other place in scripture in our text it's found seven seven times actually within three verses in verses 4 through 6 there is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now one thing we need to observe is that the unity of the church here is described as a fact. And it's not simply a fact in terms of local congregations. No, the unity of the church of Jesus Christ is a fact. Wherever there is a unity of faith in the Savior, there is a common membership in the family of god and that, that means that church unity ought not to be conceived as as some accomplishment some achievement by ecumenical talks or denominational mergers that doesn't mean that there's no value in that because this unity is to be expressed this unity is to grow this unity is to be practiced and yes that concerns our our involvement with Christians beyond the congregation. But our text doesn't say somehow achieve the unity. It says that we are to maintain it, preserve it, practice it, make it evident. This unity exists because it's grounded in God and in His grace. We are to live as one because in Christ we are one. With all the differences that exist among the many. And there are differences, differences we could enumerate on that. But here's a oneness that no human effort can achieve. And brothers and sisters, it's a oneness that truly should be the envy of the world. It's a kind of oneness that when visitors come among us, they would say, wow, what it would be great to belong to such a wide circle of people that seem to love each other. You know, they talk. I find great delight in seeing uh, groups of people talking together, laughing together, having serious conversations together after church. That's what we want the world to see, that we love each other. According to our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the, uh, the powerful testimony of his coming into the world. And we want to show the beauty of that. And we want to show... The way into that, right? It's not by cultural achievements. It's not by learning the ropes in terms of all the, all the practices and the, uh, unique little foibles or characteristics that we might have in our own historical setting and God's providence. Not that it is unimportant that we come together in such things, but that's not the basis of unity. And if that were the case, wow. Well, you know, maybe, maybe if you come from a different background after many, many years of instruction and information, you might become one of them. No, no, no. That unity is by faith in Jesus Christ. And we want to delight not only to show that unity, but to make clear the way to a participation in that unity. Because our unity is a unity of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone is invited. Everyone's invited. Everyone's invited. Everyone is invited by the Lord Jesus who says, come unto me. Come unto me. And all those who come unto him are received by him. And they're joined to him. And they're joined to his body. Amen.